Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. And today we welcome CEO of Dash Core Group, Ryan Taylor, onto the show to do two things. The first is to give us a 101 on Dash and answer some of the questions from the Crypto 101 Facebook group. And the second thing is to indulge me in my skepticism of payments with digital assets. Two years ago when I got into Bitcoin, maybe it's my own evolution, is that everything was going to be a payment. We're going to make payments with Bitcoin on Amazon. We're going to go down to the store and buy milk, bread, and eggs with Dash. But through this evolution, through the evolution of blockchain, the space, new protocols, new platforms, new dApps or ideas or business ideas, new economies, new concepts just started coming out of everywhere. So payments got pushed to the side for me as maybe it's not even that important, maybe not the sole use case or the main use case of cryptocurrency. Well, we discussed that with Ryan as well. And Ryan has his own unique take and strategic plan about payments with Dash. So please listen to this episode. But before we get to that episode, please go to Crypto101Podcast.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Follow your favorite social media to keep track on what's going on in the Crypto 101 podcast world. Also, think about becoming a patron. The patrons help support the show. Thank you very much to all the patrons. Also, check out our YouTube channel. Crypto 101 Podcast with Matthew Aaron, where I give you previews and roundups to all the interviews that I have on the show. Give you my personal opinion. Send us an email if you like. And also, don't forget to subscribe, leave us a comment and a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, without further ado, here's Ryan Taylor of Dash. And this is a long conversation, but I think it's worth it. See you after the show. Ryan Taylor, CEO of Dash Core Group Incorporated. Welcome to Crypto 101, sir. Thank you for having me. Ryan, I want to be perfectly honest with you. I know nothing about Dash, which is a good thing. It's a little embarrassing, but it's a good thing for the purpose of Crypto 101 is going to give us a 101 on Dash today. And I want to go into a little bit about you personally, the history of Dash, the evolution of Dash. How is Dash different now from when it started? A little bit of the ideology of the space, cryptocurrency in general. And I just want to talk about currency tokens. Dash is a currency token. There's a lot of them out there. There's privacy tokens. There's Bitcoin. There's Litecoin. There's things coming out all over the place, forks of whatever. How is that going to develop in the future? And then some general questions about the space, if that's okay with you, sir. Sure. Happy to. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my own background, I come from the evil side, the the side of banking and Wall Street. I have an MBA from Columbia University and then uh, ended up joining McKinsey for about seven years. McKinsey is one of the world's leading consultancies, and I focused on the financial services space, doing a lot in both technology and financial services and at the crossroads between those two. Became an associate partner and left to join a hedge fund in New York where I did all the analysis on a global staple of, of different payments investments. We had both a private equity fund and a public markets fund. And so I really covered the gamut when it came to size of company and stage of growth. 
and left there in 2016 to join the Dash team. Initially, I was the director of finance and I helped the team to prioritize where it was spending its resources and help make the team more effective. And in 2017, became CEO of the Dash core team and really got involved in digital currency fairly early on in 2013. Being in the payment space, I got exposed to it fairly early on. At the time, I felt like I was late to the game, but (laughs) I think uh, it's very clear at this point that that wasn't the case. So Yeah, been on an incredible journey and I kind of bring a different perspective, I think, to the digital currency space because I do view it as a payment method and Mm -hmm. a lot of people kind of view it as blockchain. And I I think it's kind of foolish to think of this as a blockchain industry. That's a lot like saying I'm in the database industry because my hotel uses a database. Hmm. Um, And so we're in the payments industry. And so, you know, I kind of bring that lens to the team. That's interesting. We're going to go into the payments industry in a little bit, but where were you born? Where are you from? I grew up in Minnesota. Okay. Kind of uh, in a suburb uh, type place, cold. Am I wrong and with saying this, that somebody from Minnesota getting to Columbia is a big deal? You're like the the dude in your hometown? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm <laughs> the dude in the hometown, but it. I would say it's kind of an unusual thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Minnesota people tend to be a little more wholesome and stay close to home. Mm-hmm. They value family. They're very ethical people, and they don't often end up migrating across the country, particularly to go into high finance and things like that. So yeah, it, my path was a rather unusual one. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, east side, went from the inner city, and then out to the suburbs, small towns, uh, things like that. And so I live in Taiwan now. So every time I come home, everybody's like, oh my God, the world travelers here, things like that. So yeah. I kind of I can see where you're coming from. Like you go home, everybody's like, oh, wait, wait, what's going on in the big cities and fancy degrees and things like that. And they, they haven't moved that much. And Well, you know, I have an adventurous side. I've lived overseas. I've done a lot of different things in my career. And I'm always looking to find something that interests me. So I'm not one of those people that could stay put. So maybe that's why I ended up doing all these migrations. Where have you lived overseas? I lived in Amsterdam for about a year, just basically got assigned to a project there and really enjoyed it. Ended up doing several projects there. It's a great city. Excellent. So we need to have a 101 on a Dash. First, where did Dash start? What about the name Dash? How did that come about? Dash started out as a project back in January of 2014. So it's one of the older digital currencies. It was founded by or started by a gentleman named Evan Duffield. He is actually here in Phoenix, where where I am right now. Grew up here and it just so happened that I was moving here in 2014 for personal reasons. And Evan basically approached some of the Bitcoin developers at the time and had some ideas that he wanted to try out ideas around privacy and ideas about how to make the network more efficient. And he found it very difficult to penetrate that group and have, you know, any meaningful voice. And so uh, his thought process was, well, I'll go, you know, fork the code and and experiment with my own digital currency. This seems like a very common story. Yeah. (laughs) Back then it wasn't. I mean, most of the people that were launching a coin at the time were basically copying Bitcoin's code and they didn't make any substantial changes to it. They might change an algorithm or change the emission schedule or change the frequency of blocks, but there wasn't a lot of innovation. There were Mm -hmm. a, a few coins that had experimented with proof of stake. There were a few coins that had tried to do something innovative, but there were very few projects that really broke away from 
the way that a cryptocurrency was expected to work back then. And so his ideas were pretty radical. He introduced the idea of masternodes, which is pretty commonly copied at this point. He introduced new mining algorithms, new difficulty adjustment algorithms, all in kind of this initial set of releases, leveraged the masternode network to introduce privacy features, something that hadn't been done before. It was the first coin with privacy features. Mm -hmm. And he continued innovating. And now there's there's a lot of other features, including governance, self-funding, instant transactions, all of which, you know, he brought about. And so he really was a, a brilliant mind and had, you know, a number of very committed team members surrounding him at the time and really managed to carve out a unique spot in, in the industry. So um, that's kind of some of the early history as far as when when the name changed to Dash. What was it before? It started out as Xcoin and for only about three weeks, and then some community members decided that because of the privacy feature, it should be named uh, Darkcoin. And so for about a year, we were we were actually known as Darkcoin, and I think it got a, a reputation from that name. <laughs> I, would uh, see, I would assume so, yeah. Yeah. Since the beginning of 2015, the focus had really changed. And that's when the instant transactions came out. We were really aiming to be more of a payment method. We started to focus on governance issues, as well as discuss some of the long-term usability issues with Bitcoin. And so at that time, the Darkcoin name, I, I don't think any longer kind of reflected the aims of the project and the people involved. And so in, in uh, early 2015, the name changed to Dash and has been Dash ever since. And the name evokes digital cash, and it also, I think, speaks to the speed of the network. We're probably, I I don't know this to be a fact, but out of the list of currencies that are are currently out there, I believe that we're the fastest. Transactions take place in about a second to a second and a half on the network. So So we're we're talking faster than Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bcash. I don't know if we should say Bcash. A lot of people get upset about Bcash. (laughs) Um, Litecoin, faster than all those. Yes, so uh, you, you can send a transaction and basically get authorization within about a second and a half that right the transaction is, is going through. In the, so it, it's valuable at the point of sale. It's valuable in any use case where time is valuable. So that there's a lot of use cases there where, where we see it being used. Right on. Could you give us a one-on-one on a couple of things that you said? First, masternodes. What is a masternode? Well, in first-generation cryptocurrencies, The software developers basically publish open source code. Anyone is free to download that software and run it from their home computer or a server or whatever they want. And there's no limitations on it. You can start as many of these nodes on the network as you want. A node is just an instance of the software on the network. And it it does a lot of different tasks. It relays messages around the network. It keeps full copies of the blockchain so that there are redundant copies uh, all over the network. It services end users, basically. In the case of all the first-generation cryptocurrencies, that's basically a volunteer task. Mm-hmm. You contribute to the network, your processing power, your network, your memory, all of the resources that your computer uses, and that's basically altruistic. You're, you're, not, you're not getting anything in return. In the case of Dash, we recognize that mining or the process of securing transactions is only one need of the network. And so we were the first digital currency to split our block reward. And what we do with it is 45% of that goes towards miners, Mm -hmm. just as they would with Bitcoin. 
45% is allocated towards master nodes. So they are paid for that service in our network. Mm -hmm. And the remaining 10% is set aside for what we call treasury. And we can talk more about that in a minute. But that's basically everything else. Everything else you could imagine from uh, legal work to developers to marketing to business development. And so the master nodes essentially serve a few different purposes in order to upgrade. Like I said, anyone is free to download the software and run a full node on their computer. But mm. in order to become a master node, you have to sign a special cryptographic message out to the network that proves that you have ownership over a thousand dash. And so Right now, at today's prices, that's about $265,000 worth. Whoa. So it's a significant investment. What that does is it prevents any one person from controlling that layer of the network. Mm -hmm. We know for a fact that it is widely distributed and owned. And that allows you to do some pretty unique things. Um, unlike a single-tier network where it's basically free to run one of these nodes, you don't know who owns which nodes. Anyone could go to Amazon Web Services and spin up 5,000 Bitcoin instances right now, and they would have a significant number of the nodes on the network. In our network, at the masternode layer, you can't do that. It would be cost prohibitive. Mm. And so what you can do with that layer of the network is you can use it to provide services that are otherwise not possible. Our instant send feature utilizes this layer of the network to essentially each of these nodes votes on transactions and locks them in place in a way that the entire network recognizes is secure. And if anyone attempts to violate those transactions by attempting to do something else uh, with those same funds, the entire network knows to reject those transactions, to reject any conflicting transactions that or any blocks that might contain conflicting transactions. So we're, we're able to use those masternodes in order to provide superior services that aren't available on single-tier networks. And being a masternode means a few different things. It means that you have to have really high uptime. And the reason is because those payments only come about every eight days, and only if you stay up and running for the entire eight days. Mm -hmm. And so... Most of the masternodes are hosted in high availability, high speed data centers. It means our network is incredibly fast and professionally managed. And it also means that the masternodes act a lot like shareholders in our network. They have a significant stake in it. They own at least a thousand dash and they also get a vote. So our governance system that oversees that treasury component I referenced earlier, mm -hmm. that's voted on by the masternodes. So in that sense, they have some similarities to shareholders. They own a significant part of the network. They're paid to operate the network itself and they get a say in how the network's resources are allocated. And so it serves a lot of different purposes from governance to very practical things in terms of the services that we can provide all in one. I think that answers Jaden Tikowski's question that he had for you from the Crypto 101 Facebook page was, what is the advantage of having masternodes so expensive and inaccessible? Does it have any effect on the integrity of the network? I think that perfectly answers that question. The second question I have is, Instant transactions. These are some basic terms I know that we didn't cover on Crypto 101, but you mentioned that earlier when you were talking about some advantages of Dash. Instant transactions. Can you build on that a little bit? 
so may maybe as background here, I'll, I'll talk about how this happens in the Bitcoin network, how a transaction occurs in the Bitcoin network, and then contrast it with, oh, with cool. what added functionality we've, we've incorporated. Wonderful. So with Bitcoin transactions, basically ownership of the coin is basically associated with a something called a cryptographic private key. And you sign messages out to the network with that key in order to move the funds. Messages basically propagate the network over the course of, you know, uh, anywhere from a few seconds to a minute. And they eventually reach most of the nodes on the network and reach a miner. Uh, miners essentially are the ones that are running the computing hashing on the network that actually secures those to the blockchain. And about every 10 minutes or so, one of those blocks is found on the Bitcoin network and a set of up to around 2,000 transactions are secured to the blockchain. But until those transactions are secured to the blockchain, the receiver doesn't have a high degree of certainty that those transactions will go through. And an attacker can attempt to send conflicting transactions, mine conflicting transactions into the blockchain until that event occurs. And so for a period of anywhere from a few seconds to 40 minutes or an hour, you might be waiting for one of those transactions to confirm. And as a merchant, you're not really able to have a high degree of assurance that that transaction will actually go through as indicated until it does confirm. So the implication is that is it doesn't work very well at the point of sale. It doesn't work very well if you're trying to transact live. There's a certain amount of risk that you have to accept if you're going to allow someone to walk out your door with goods or services. Right. So we attempted to solve that problem and have with leveraging the masternode network. And the way that we do that is when you send an instant send transaction, it's a special transaction type. You specify that in the transaction itself. And when the transaction broadcasts, there are a set of masternodes, we call them a quorum, that is randomly but deterministically selected. And what that means is there's a random set of masternodes that everyone agrees are the the 10 masternodes that are going to vote on this transaction. They all automatically evaluate the transaction in, the, in their code and uh, determine whether the transaction is valid. Do they see a conflicting transaction? Mm -hmm. Are these inputs correct? You know, it, it, is this a good transaction? And if mm -hmm. the answer is yes, they vote in favor of that transaction. In about a second, all of those votes, all 10 votes, propagate the network. And the network can easily see that a wide number of masternodes all agree that this transaction is valid. And the entire network essentially agrees at that point that if any conflicting transaction is sent, it will not propagate the network. Mm -hmm. Or if a block is mined, if it does happen to reach a miner and does get mined into a block, that block becomes invalid. And so there's no incentive for a miner to attempt to mine one of those conflicting transactions. And essentially what it does is it, it allows the entire network to, in an automated fashion, coordinate what's called a user-activated soft fork. And it just means that the entire network is going to ignore any transaction that conflicts with that one. And so now the merchant can be assured that that transaction is a valid one, no conflicting transaction will ever be sent, and that transaction will very quickly work its way into a block. And so we, we've essentially separated authorization from settlement in the same way that credit cards do. 
the merchant doesn't actually get the money from your credit card transaction the moment that you swipe your card. Right. It doesn't show up in their bank account. But what right. they do have is a relatively high assurance that mm. that transaction will go through and will end up in their bank account in three days. And that's what allows you to walk out the door with groceries. And so the level of assurance that we provide is almost guaranteed. I'm not aware of any double spend ever with an instant send transaction. None have been reported in the three years since we've rolled out that feature. And it's a really valuable use case for a lot of different industries and transaction types. So two questions came from that. One, is the one second fast enough? Right now, if everybody starts using Dash, you know, buying stuff all over the place, is one second fast enough? Do you have enough network capability to handle lots of transactions? And the second one is, it's almost, you said, almost foolproof. There has never been a double spend. What happens to the integrity of your network or the integrity of the company, Dash, if ever there is a double spend? How do you rectify that situation and still have confidence? I hedge a little bit because it's always possible that there is a bug that we don't know about. The code has been open source for three years. Some minor vulnerabilities have been found that would, for all practical purposes, be difficult to exploit. One required ownership of around $3 million worth of Dash in order to even attempt it. Mm -hmm. And even then it would be near impossible. So it's been open sourced and reviewed for a long time and no flaws have been found, but it is certainly possible that one exists. So mm -hmm. I can't say with 100% certainty that no exploit will ever be found. But you know, at this point, I think it's far more secure than even a Bitcoin transaction that's received several confirmations. Right. So my, my question was, was that there's nothing is 100%. We all know that, you know, yeah. even like I've, how many times have you been on a trip, you try to use your credit card, it didn't go through, you had to call your bank, all kinds yeah. of shit, or it, it, things happen, you know, but with Cryptocurrencies, we have a kind of unreasonable expectation that nothing bad will ever happen. Worst case scenario, yeah. you do have double spends. You do something does happen to the network. What is your worst case scenario plan in, to keep the confidence in Dash? Well, two things happen. One, if an instant send fails for whatever reason, it simply falls back to a regular transaction, and so it receives its confirmation the normal way, which is when it hits a block. And so there's there's no real risk of say an instant send transaction truly failing. It just would, you know, if it failed to lock, it it simply fails over to the normal course of a transaction. The second thing is we limit the amount that an instant send is allowed to be. So I believe the current limitation is 2000 dash. Now that's still over half a million dollars, so it's, it's not a bit. an insignificant amount, but it does limit, you know, any type of the upper end of the risk there. And so, you know, I, I think with three years under its belt, uh, it's been battle tested. I don't think that the risks are very significant. Instant Send is essentially an enhanced and second source of security. It basically gets all the normal transaction benefits plus the benefits of the additional security before it hits a block. So mm -hmm. it's, it's in no way less secure than a regular transaction and has a lot of advantages to it. You know, I, I would say that the types of scenarios in which a significant number of these transactions fail is as close to zero as you can get at this point, um, just given the level of rigor and review and, and battle testing that it's gone through. Um, it, to answer the other question you asked about, is one second sufficient? It's actually faster than a credit card. 
Um, mm -hmm. When you swipe a card at a credit card terminal, even if it's connected to the internet and doesn't require a dial-up like some you know, smaller shops and things require, right. um, you don't notice that. It takes about two seconds for that entire process to take place for a credit card issuer to authorize it and for it to make the round trip. It happens pretty much instantaneously as far as you're concerned. Mm -hmm. And so as long as we're on par with that, humans are not going to notice that. What, where you run into problems is when it takes 10 seconds. Right. So just taking a, an example of a fast blockchain, uh, Ethereum is about 17 seconds, I think. 17 seconds would be a long time to wait in, in line, line with, with, some uh, with people behind you, <laughs> um, kind of breathing down your throat and saying, oh, gosh, you know, like in 17 seconds, you can almost write a check. Right. So, you know, I, I think that... <laughs> or, or the old lady in front of you with the coin purse can count her pennies. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> as long as we're, you know, on par with a credit card transaction, I, I don't think there's any payment method out there that's faster than that. Even paying cash takes longer on average because they have to make change generally. So you have privacy, you have speed, you have all these different aspects in, into Dash. Dash seems like the all-around currency coin. It's... Bitcoin, Litecoin, Monero, Zcash, Bcash, all this stuff into one. It's faster than Bcash. It's private or even more private than Monero. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. Oh, okay. Um, no, I, our privacy feature like Zcash is optional. Very mm -hmm. few transactions actually utilize it, uh, less than 1%. And I don't think what we're optimizing for is the degree of privacy that we provide. There are trade-offs with... Um, providing higher levels of security. It bloats the blockchain. It, it requires you to have a full copy of the blockchain in order to use some of these technologies, mm -hmm. and that prevents their use on a mobile device. Um, so I don't want to oversell uh, that we have everything. What we're going for is a good balance between all the different features that make for a great payment network. If what you're trying to do is optimize for the very highest level of anonymity possible, that's different from a privacy solution, and um, it does require trade-offs. And there are use cases for it, right? I, I think when, you know, anonymity is absolutely required, you know, there are better solutions out there. But what we're aiming for is for high throughput at very low costs, ease of use, speed, and reliability. And those are all things that make for a great payment network. And and we've. There are technical trade-offs between some of these things, and you, you have to balance them off. Could we make Dash faster? Absolutely. It would require us to you know, compromise something. It would either be the robustness of the network in terms of its size and number of nodes that are operating on it, or it might require the transactions themselves to become smaller mm -hmm. and have fewer options associated with them. There are a lot of different things that you have to weigh off and what we're aiming for is kind of this sweet spot as a payments-oriented network. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Aaron and I'm here to tell you about our YouTube channel, Crypto 101 with Matthew Aaron. And the reason why we're doing this YouTube channel is because, well, we heard your feedback. Some people really like listening to stuff on YouTube. So all the audio podcasts are going to be posted on YouTube. Also, we're going to do previews and roundups of each episode. The previews are going to tell you about how we got to doing this topic, talking to these individuals, and where this interview came from. And the roundups are going to give you my personal opinions on the projects, the people, and, well, some commentary. 
And the reason why we're doing this is because we never want you to feel that we're shilling a certain project. I want you to get my personal opinions, honestly, openly. So please subscribe to Crypto 101 with Matthew Aaron on YouTube and enjoy. Comments are always welcome. And please let us know how we're doing. Now, back to the show. So then I guess what I was going to go with this is that there's a lot of different, let's call it competition. I don't know if you want to call it competition, competition out there. <laughs> and everybody seems to be vying for the same thing, same position, same idea of let's go to the store and buy some Coca-Cola and some bread or transact or, you know, in one way or the other. Why Dash? And if so, Dash, how does Dash plan to be dominant, get the market share, the lion's share from these other companies? Well, um, we've differentiated ourselves in a lot of different ways, um, some of which we've covered, some of which we haven't. One of the big ones is our governance system. I think in the case of a lot of these digital currencies, making decisions on the network is very hard. We've seen you know, Bitcoin split, we've seen Ethereum split, and governance is a topic that we focused on far before it was a popular topic because we recognize that it's really important to get governance right in order to have a coherent strategy, in order to have a coherent path to market. And so we, you know, in 2015, introduced the governance system and self-funding model that allows us to essentially have the network allocate funding towards teams that have stated goals. And in the case of Dash Core Group, we have a stated mission that we are able to publish a strategy, a go-to-market strategy, a product strategy, and the network is deciding whether or not to fund that operation. And so when it does, it is essentially endorsing our mandate and allowing us to go out and pursue our strategy. And our strategy is one of being a great payments use case. There's no argument about whether or not we're trying to be the best possible store of value or the best possible anything else. We are you know, orienting all of our technology decisions around payments. And it also allows us to go after business development opportunities and say, okay, what is it that Dash does really well? And how can we target those use cases? So, you know, we've been targeting a variety of different geographic opportunities, and we've been targeting a number of industry opportunities that leverage our speed, ease of use, and low transaction costs. I get it. I get it. And you said, you know, you have... There's all kinds of different aspects to it. You're fast, the governance, you know, you you mentioned before, I don't think it was uh, while we were recording, we're talking in private, you have 70 developers working full time on Dash. Is that correct? Well, we have uh, 70 employees and contractors. They're not all developers. We have a marketing team. We have translators who, you know, translate news and information into other Mm -hmm. languages. Uh, We have uh, product development people. We have graphic designers. We have um, project management teams and and, um, uh, we have business development teams. So, you know, we have all the normal business functions that you would expect a business to have in order to go fulfill our mission as a team. And it doesn't just take developers. It takes an entire team of people working together to, to fulfill a goal. You know, development is only one aspect of a goal. And the, the goal is to get Dash being used in Amazon, the Carrefour downstairs for me, the 7-Eleven across the street, correct? 
Is that the, is I that mean, the goal? ultimately, ultimately, yes. I don't think that that is an immediate goal. I don't think that's realistic. So, so what's the what's the immediate goals and road um, roadmap? Because here's, I guess, what I'm trying to get into. You have lots of competition. You have a lot of people, you know, vying for the Amazon payment. We haven't seen a cryptocurrency there. I'm going for Litecoin because I hold Litecoin. Apologize, <laughs> but. You know, everybody wants to see this light at the end of the tunnel where it's this mainstream, you know, I go down to my care for buy bread, eggs, and come up here and make a sandwich. How is that going to progress? And we talk about governance. We talk about developers. We talk about all these different features that something has. But at the end of the day, the consumer is not going to care until it gets to the store and they can scan a QR code and buy something with Dash. Yes. So let's talk about merchant adoption because, you know, merchants can, you can only use it if merchants adopt it. And I think what a lot of people in digital currency uh, don't realize is that, great, transaction fees are low. That doesn't mean that you're going to get adopted with a merchant. Merchants will tell you very often that, hey, great, if you can lower my transaction costs, that's great because credit cards cost a fortune and I don't like that. But at the end of the day, merchants care about a few different things. And transaction cost is actually pretty low on the list. The first thing is they care about the conversion rate on the transactions. So just taking a website as an example, if I add a new payment method and a large number of my consumers are not paying with it, I'm actually disincentivized from doing that, even Mm -hmm. if the transactions are free. And the reason is, is because when I start adding new payment methods, my checkout page starts to look a lot like a NASCAR with (laughs) a bunch of stickers all over it. And, you know, it, it. it's not a pleasing experience for the customer. They actually have to wade through all their different payment method types. And chances are very few people are going to be ready to use crypto. It's a chicken and egg problem. And if that is the case, what happens is consumers see Bitcoin there and they say, well, what the hell is Bitcoin? And pretty soon they're, they're checking out Bitcoin's webpage instead of using their credit card to make the payment. And Mm -hmm. uh, conversion rates actually drop. So the merchant is losing sales. That's a very bad value proposition. They'd rather pay 2% to a credit card company and have the sale go through. And so until you address that conversion rate issue, nobody's going to start adding you to their, their page. What they care about are three things. One, are you bringing me new customers that otherwise could not pay? Right. In the case of Bitcoin, the answer is no. Right. <laughs> right. Are you increasing the conversion rates on the sales that I do have? So, you know, people get to the checkout page. Is there a high conversion rate on your payment method? Bitcoin's really difficult to use. Most people, you know, they, they might be faced with a QR code or maybe have to enter a long cryptographic address. It is mm-hmm. not a familiar user experience. The conversion rate drops. Right. Third, is it easy to integrate? My payment processor doesn't have Bitcoin on it. So, you know, the existing payment gateway or payment processor that I'm using doesn't have Bitcoin. No, it's not easy. Now I have two different payment methods that are coming into my web page. I have to reconcile manually between those two mm-hmm. when it comes time to do Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
the accounting. Is this adding value? No. And so there's lots of barriers to someone like Amazon wanting this. They Mm -hmm. don't want it. And so you have to gain traction through mechanisms that where the use case for digital currency is really strong. And so you need a strategy that gets you there. PayPal did not start out being on every web page. They started out in a closed ecosystem called eBay and they solved real problems there. You know, you used to have to send a cashier's check through the mail or enter your credit card information on this new thing called the internet that Mm -hmm. nobody knew what the security of it was and people were getting hacked all the time. And so you solved a real problem where people were insecure about entering their information online and they weren't comfortable with the delays of going to the bank to get a cashier's check and mail it. And so uh, PayPal reached a certain scale and then they started moving to web pages mm-hmm. usually small mom and pop web pages where people were afraid to enter their credit cards and then they worked their way up to the mid-sized merchants and the large merchants but you have to have a strategy and a path to get to mass adoption and right now there is no strategy because no one's in charge and so this is the problem you, you have to have a path that you're going to follow and you need some level of payments expertise to understand what successful paths look like. They're well, me, hard. But that, that's where you come in. Is there a dash bay in the works or something? What's, the, what's that first, first step for yeah, you guys? So, well, we do have a release that's coming uh, called Evolution. And a- Evolution is actually a series of release over probably the next few years that will incorporate more and more features. Initially, we're trying to take the familiarity of Venmo, if you've ever used it, or PayPal, and just bring that to crypto. Get rid of the cryptographic address. PayPal, by the everything. way. Just hate it. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot to dislike, uh, but, <laughs> just but there is a lot. There. That, there's a lot to envy about what they do too. Um, they do a lot of things well. Like what? But be annoying. Make me have the same phone number for the last 10 years. Not allow me to send money to Mongolia. (laughs) What what do they do? They're not consumer friendly, but they do solve certain problems really well. They do provide really good merchant services. And hey, you get what you pay for. They're free, right? (laughs) Send peer to peer. It is free. And they don't. There's a certain level of service that you get with that. But uh, they do. Um, user experience really well, in particular their Venmo product. And it's simple. You, you, you have a username, you're able to log in from multiple devices, you can send a payment request and, and friend people. That's what we're going to introduce, is the ability to create a username on the blockchain, to friend other users, and you won't see cryptographic addresses anymore. It makes it much more familiar and approachable to everyday people, not cryptophiles who you know, just love the the technology itself. Mm -hmm. And you have to bridge that gap. So that's step one. Step two is, yes, you need a marketplace where buyers and sellers can come together. Best Buy is not going to list Bitcoin or Dash or any other cryptocurrency until it reaches scale. And you can't reach scale until you have the Best Buys. So how do you do that? Well, uh, you can start by creating a marketplace where Best Buy can create an app that's only visible inside the Dash app. Dash wallet. Mm -hmm. And you can search for these merchants, you can search their inventory, purchase a television. And guess what? They don't need to put Dash on their checkout page on their web page. They don't need to go through that hurdle. Um, And Dash users have a place to go to where they can actually 
find merchants. Now you are bringing them new customers that they otherwise would not get. If they didn't have an app in there, uh, those Dash users and enthusiasts would go to uh, the provider that did have televisions available in mm. their app. And so now, now they have an incentive to integrate. Well, what happens next? Well, now I, as a consumer, later decide, you know what? I want a sound system. I want a sound bar for my television. I go to dash dot, or I go to uh, bestbuy.com, reach their checkout page, and lo and behold, no Dash. And now I'm contacting support, and I'm demanding it. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I think that there are paths to getting there. But you need a real strategy from payments experts. We have our business development team has people from American Express on it. Uh, you know, we have people like myself that really understand this stuff. And uh, you need that as part of your team if you're going to break into mainstream. It is not going to happen because you have lower fees. That's unrealistic. You make up, bring a lot of good points there, and I would really like to see how this is going to evolve in the future, <laughs> the evolution. Sorry, yeah. you're stealing your trademark already. At least in my circle of talking to people in cryptocurrency and stuff like that and blockchain, they say currency tokens are dead. Like all the focus being moved to dApps, platforms, utility, STOs, fundraising, ICOs, things like that. Nobody cares because nobody sees the light at the end of the tunnel of making a payment in the Carrefour or the Best Buy or Amazon like we've been talking about. You gave a roadmap. But what would you tell people who said, because your first quote of, the, of this conversation was, this is a payments industry. What would you tell these yeah. guys that say, how, how would you tell them to give them a middle finger and say, no, this is a payments industry? Well, I'd say, first of all, we haven't seen a competent entry into the payments industry that utilizes digital currency. None of the leading projects have done it right. On the consumer adoption side, the consumer is the one paying for the transaction. That doesn't happen in any other payment method, and there's a reason for it. Consumers hate paying a fee to spend their money. It shouldn't be designed that way. Mm. You know, you just go down the list of adoption factors for merchants and consumers, and it's been done wrong across the board. I'm not even saying generally. I mean every single adoption factor that you evaluate Digital currency does the opposite, as designed today. And so you need to redesign it. It's why we're going through this effort to redesign the way that Dash works and branch away from the code base that we inherited. And so uh, I, I, I would say it hasn't been given a proper shot yet, first mm. of all. I would say, secondly, that the industry hasn't really focused on the use cases that digital currency does really well. What they've tried to do is say, oh, we're like credit cards, but cheaper. <laughs> okay. But that isn't the first place digital currencies are going to be adopted. They have unique attributes. And so far, it's just been displacing existing. Now, it does do international remittances better. It does certain credit card transactions better. But they're trying to apply their existing... Uh, paradigm about what a payment is, and they're just taking cryptocurrency and trying to compete with the existing payment systems. Well, I, I, in, I would ass- in the I would US, assume, I'm sorry, I would assume that they're doing that, and I, I usually don't interrupt, but I just want to say, I assume people are doing that because it's familiar to the consumer. This is how they understand it. it credit cards, but... Well, it's feel familiar to everyone. Like, the programmers of, of these currencies, it's familiar to everyone. But there are things that digital currency can do that no other payment type can. For example... Microtransactions. No other payment method can do a microtransaction as efficiently as digital currency. So what what use cases are we seeing that utilize that feature? We aren't. Mm. Uh, 
but imagine a business, a, a new business, a new path to business for, say, a, a publisher. Instead of requiring someone to sign up for a monthly subscription, you could have them have your customers pay per article. You can't do that with a credit card. You can't do a 10 cent transaction with a credit card economically. And so, you know, I don't think that we've really seen the power and potential and value that digital currencies can, can unlock because no one's really explored those types of opportunities and attempted to develop solutions for them. We're working with a bunch of different companies on microtransactions. And one of them, well, one entity that we're working with right now is the Department of Energy. And we've helped to uh, fund some development work with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in order to explore the ability to sell excess power to your neighbor if you have solar panels on your roof. Mm -hmm. Well, those are microtransactions. They're 10 cents. You can't do that in any other payment method peer-to-peer. And so um, we're basically enabling... We, we need to start exploring some of these microtransaction use cases. Uh, it also crosses border and addresses you know, shortcomings in financial systems really well. We're seeing massive adoption in Venezuela because the inflation rate there is in the tens of thousands of percent. And so consumers there actually don't mind the volatility of Dash because it may be volatile, but at least it, it uh, holds its value over time. And so uh, we have over 400 merchants in the capital city of Caracas that oh, wow. accept Dash as a form of payment. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, we have an office in Caracas where users can go and get set up with a wallet and get trained on how it works. Right on. Uh, we have advertising on billboards. We have t- people holding conferences that educate merchants and consumers on how to use it. How many people are All using of Dash? This stuff, uh, we don't know, obviously. You know, Just like Bitcoin, it's impossible to tell. Mm. Uh, but what I can tell you is we've seen tens of thousands of downloads per month coming from Venezuela. Wow. Wow. And so we know that a lot of people have at least checked it out, and we know that a lot of people are using it. Crypto Buyer, which is a uh, brokerage service that services Venezuela, they uh, service both Bitcoin and Dash. Dash is the vast majority of the transactions that they conduct. And it's because Dash is useful as an everyday payment method. When your average transaction is you know, uh, $5, you can't afford a $0.78 cent transaction fee or whatever it is on Bitcoin right now. And it's also not instant. So you can't use it, you know, at the restaurant or uh, at a fruit stand or something. And so there are pockets where this is occurring, where their own financial systems are so bad that we have an inroad here in in order to have a base to grow from. And so, look, I, I think the game is far from over. Payments behavior changes glacially slow. And that's what people don't realize. People <laughs> still pay with checks in massive numbers. That's true. This is going to take decades, not next year. And so the people that had expectations that Amazon is going to start taking Bitcoin next year or something, they got disappointed. But this is not over. The value is here and it is absolutely going to happen. It's just going to take a lot longer than most people bank on. I want to ask this last question before we go into general questions, but I just want to make it quick. You gave a pretty good roadmap of how to 
get massive adoption. It's a slow journey. Customers shouldn't be paying for fees to purchase at the store. That should be either the merchants or another way. And you understood how PayPal does it, how to, you know, like I said, how to get this integration into hopefully in a decade or so become widely used. If it's so obvious to you and the Dash team, why hasn't other people started going this route if they have not already? And would they agree with you? Would people like Charlie Lee or Roger Veer agree with your point of view? Or would they say, I really think he's just full of it? One of the things that I learned when I was in the payment space was very, very few people understand it end to end. They might be a card issuer and they understand how card issuing works. They might be a merchant acquirer and understand how merchant acquiring works. They might work for one of the networks and understand the pieces that they touch. You might work in gift cards and understand the value proposition there and how how that portion of the industry works. But very few people have an end-to-end understanding of it. It's very complicated. And even as I would talk to experts all day in my role at the hedge fund, you know, I found very few people with a deep level of insight. So if people in the payments industry can't really grasp what it takes to be successful, I don't know how I could expect uh, people that are, you know, coming from uh, a, a variety engineering of background or something would right. would have the ability to grasp it very easily. I don't claim to understand the entire payments ecosystem either, but I understand a lot of its principles, and um, you know, we're applying them here. I, I quite frankly don't pay much attention to what other projects think will work or think will be successful because I haven't seen the level of credibility on the idea front or why it should work. I do believe that most of them would disagree with me and hmm. say that you're doing it wrong, but we're, we're forging our own path. And it's one that we're basing on what's been actually successful in the payments industry. And so I have more confidence that we're doing it right than what I've seen from some other uh, projects. Mm-hmm. I try not to get in arguments with anybody. I, I, we're very heads down and focused on what we're trying to do. I'm not trying to badmouth other projects or, or say you know, that they're going to fail. I actually think there's room for a lot of these projects to be successful because no merchant is ever going to rely on one just for redundancy purposes, just for competition purposes. Right. There's a reason we have multiple credit card networks. It's because, you know, they all do something a little bit different. They bring different value to the marketplace. And I would expect that others will compete with Dash if we are successful. But what I can tell you is I I think that a lot of these projects have a governance structure that makes it very difficult for them to pivot. And so I think they're, uh, if I were leading one of those projects and knowing that it's very difficult for governance to have an impact, it's very difficult for those coins to change their features. It's very difficult for them to change their or, or even institute a strategy. And so I think if I were in that position, I would defend the status quo pretty vehemently, consciously or unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And so I, we're kind of coming in at this from we're here to shake things up and try to incorporate as best we can payments about industry best practices. And our hypothesis is that that would allow us to grow more quickly. You know, a lot of people always say, like, how does a currency have a CEO? It's a currency. How do you explain your how do you explain a CEO? You just said governance. You're a CEO of a currency. No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, absolutely not. Dash does not have a CEO. OK, uh, you are the CEO of I'm the CEO of Dash Core Group, Inc., one of many companies that serve 
the Dash network. We're a bit like a vendor, okay. albeit you know a very special one. We have a lot of responsibility for the network. And so we're not the only development team. There are other development teams that develop other wallets. There are all kinds of teams in countries across the world that are developing their own solutions. There's a company out of uh, Zimbabwe called Kuvacash that is powered by the Dash network, but they're building their own solutions. You know, it, this is a vibrant ecosystem and Dash Core Group Inc. is just one of many entities that are serving the network. Mm -hmm. Now we happen to be one of the larger ones, but we have to get our funding the exact same way everybody else does, which is apply to the treasury system for that funding and justify our existence to the network. The network itself votes on those proposals, and if they get enough votes, uh, we receive the funding to continue our operations. Mm -hmm. We're also uniquely owned. All the shares in Dash Core Group Inc. are issued to a trust called the Dash DAO Irrevocable Trust. And the trust beneficiaries are the network itself. So we have no profit motive. Mm -hmm. We draw from the network what we need to operate. We have a fiduciary duty back to the network to serve its best interests as best we can. And I try to do a good job of you know, managing the funds that are given to us and, and pursuing a strategy that makes sense for the network. But we can be voted out at any time and replaced. The management team itself can be voted out at any time by the network so that they can retain all the developers and all the good people that are working here mm -hmm. and just replace me or just replace uh, our board or something. And so uh, we've set it up in a way where we're very, very accountable back to the network that funds us. And we have no profit incentive. I have no incentive to draw anything more from the network than I need to operate. So it's a very unique setup. But it gives, gives the large coin holders, the masternode owners, a say in how we operate and who is leading what projects for the network. And it's not just Dash Core Group. They have that say over funding for all of the projects servicing the network. And that's far superior to relying on you know, six large miners in China <laughs> that are going to make all the decisions for your network for you. Right on. Let's go into some quick general questions, if you don't mind. Sure. Who do you look up to in the space? If you were going to go on your Twitter feed or read a Medium blog or, or what have you, and this person wrote something, tweeted something, said something, is on CNBC saying something, who would that person be that you would be paying attention to? That's a great question. I think right now that would be Vitalik. And I'm, like I said, I've never he really... He is the most popular thing. answer, by the way. I can see why. I, I was actually, you know, I'm, I'm not public about this, but I could probably talk about it now. But because um, I, I, I don't, I try not to disparage anybody and, and say that they're, they're doing a poor job or whatever. But when Vitalik first started, you know, I, I, I actually was highly critical of him in private. And, and the reason was, is because I, I thought he was making some rookie mistakes, doing some things like endorsing projects that or agreeing to be an advisor on projects that were scammy. And, uh, you know, his decision very early on to start with something as complicated as the DAO, if you remember that back mm -hmm. in 2016, I thought that there were much better use cases for smart contracts that were simpler to implement, carried much less risk and offered a lot more value. But I think that Vitalik has matured a lot. He's learned very quickly. You know, he learned from his endorsements that it wasn't wise to lend his endorsement to a lot of stuff 
that it required due diligence before doing so. He apologized for, you know, uh, lending his name so easily early on. I think that he's become much more practical in his decision making around the Ethereum network and, you know, hasn't repeated the same types of mistakes. So I think he's come a long way. I, 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 you know, I admire someone that is able to learn and, and be very transparent about mistakes that they've made and own up to them. And, and he's done all of that. And, and so, you know, now I look at his, his Twitter and, you know, he, he, he has poignant things to say very often and, and he's very practical and he's not afraid to point out to people when they're not being practical or being too idealistic. You know, so what's interesting I, about that, what you said about being idealistic is, is when he was, I remember just reading him about two years ago, even from two years ago to now, he's made a drastic shift of being a very idealistic person to much more practical and realistic. Yeah. And uh, I think that comes from experience. Look, he, he, he's, he's a young guy. Right. Um, but make no mistake, when he's, he talks, people listen. And, and um, I think that um, with that type of power, you know, he, he's got a lot of responsibility and he's starting to really uh, wield it much more intelligently. So, um, yeah, I, I think right now I, that would be my answer. And I can see why it's a popular answer. Now, on a personal level, I would assume that you have a pretty big network of people that you can reach out to at any time if you have you know, questions about Dash or anything else with cryptocurrency, blockchain, the way the space is going. Who advice would you take? If you were in a, in a, in a pinch and you said, I got to reach out to somebody in the, in the space right now, who would you reach out to? You know, I, I, I depend a lot on the topic. It's hard to generalize <laughs> true, true. something like that. But if I had to say who would have uh, the best advice for uh, the broadest set of issues, it would probably be someone like Brian Armstrong. Okay. Um, not just because of his position at Coin Coinbase, but also because he's involved in funding a lot of other projects and evaluating them. And so, um, you know, I think that that he's one person who just has a wide breadth of exposure to everything from like regulatory issues to adoption issues to trading to i i think he's just got a, a very unique perch where he's mm -hmm. at that said brian uh is very inaccessible for a lot of different reasons because of those same reasons right i i think that you know compliance has been a challenge for coinbase in terms of you know insider trading accusations and mm -hmm. you know all kinds of things that they've dealt with there from a compliance standpoint and so, you know, I, I think in his position, he's got to be extremely cautious about who he engages with and what type of advice he provides. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of a, a catch-22 there in terms of, you know, maybe he wouldn't be the best guy to reach out to just because you probably wouldn't get many answers. What do you think of the Coinbase announcement of considering to put those other coins on their, on their platform? And were you a little disappointed that Dash wasn't one of them? Well, I think if you read the series of tweets, uh, you get a much fuller picture. What they actually said in that series of tweets is that we are publicly announcing that we are exploring these assets for the explicit reason that they are technically unique mm -hmm. to assets we already have on our platform and therefore require consultation externally. So before we begin that external consultation to see how these might be implemented and secured and all of that, 
we are publicly announcing that we are investigating them so, so that everybody is on the, a level playing field as far as knowing what the status is. Did you just is. read that quote? Did you have it on your, on your screen in no. front of you? <laughs> I was like, no. you had it ready. Did I, did I get it? Did I get it exact? I, I have know. no clue, but it sounded like you did. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm boiling down it to its essence. What the second tweet said is, is that other assets like Ethereum Classic we were able to implement on our platform without external consultation because it is technically similar to Ethereum and therefore did not require this external disclosure ahead of time. Dash is technically very similar to Bitcoin. It is a fork of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It has essentially inherited all of its improvements. It uh, has a similar you know, interface as far as uh, with the core wallet, etc. And so... For that reason, I would never expect Dash to be listed along with Cardano and, you know, a bunch of those other assets that are technically very different from Bitcoin or Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm, I'm not able to read anything into that tweet that says Dash is not being considered. What, it's, what it simply says is these are a subset of the coins that we are investigating that all have technically unique attributes their own code base, and we're having to reach out externally. Right on, right on. Crypto 101 is positioned to be one of the first places that somebody might stumble on coming into the space. If you, you Google 101 cryptocurrency or cryptocurrency 101 or anything of that nature to come into the space, you're probably going to hit the podcast or our website. If this is one of the first podcasts that somebody getting into the space was going to listen to or listen to, just popping in, Bitcoin went up 10%. So they're like, oh, now is the time to invest. We're going to go put some money <laughs> into Bitcoin. What would you tell them? I would say be responsible. There is a lot of hype in the space there is a lot of enthusiasm, and it's easy to get caught up in this, but don't invest more than you can afford to lose. And I would say the second thing is do your own due diligence. Don't invest significant amounts of money in something you don't yet have a firm understanding of how it works, what its strategy is, how it's going to grow. I think there's there's just a, a lot of uh, mentality of I can invest any, you know, just spread my investments all over this place. And some of these projects will pop and become extremely valuable. I, I don't think we know that right now. And so I, I think that you, you need to enter the place with caution and with responsibility. That said, I think there is opportunity. I, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe in the potential of the industry. And I think a lot of smart people are here. And that should tell you something. So it is worth learning about. It is worth investing your time. But don't go making big moves right away. I think this is an industry that takes time to learn before you start allocating money. You wouldn't do the same thing in the stock market. You wouldn't just start buying some company uh, shares without properly investigating it. And then the last thing I would say is find projects that you find useful. You know, there's nothing better than uh, finding a digital currency or a token or something that serves a useful pur purpose in incorporating it into your life. Mm -hmm. And so if you can do things that you can't do with other payment methods, if you can remit money back home for cheaper, or you can stand up a business that you couldn't otherwise do without digital currency, those are exciting opportunities. And if you can find ways to incorporate it in your life, that's even better. Otherwise, we're just a speculative vehicle. A question from listener Mark Van Horn asks, when moon? When moon? <laughs> um, we we I'm, try not I'm to joking, talk about man. Yeah, no. 
we've always been the anti-hype coin. Um, you know, like the founder Evan Duffield and myself have both, you know, encouraged the community to avoid that type of talk in the first place. Um, our marketing is all oriented on the utility, not on price increases or countdown timers or anything else. Right. I think that the the extent to which I talk about pricing is pricing behavior. I think that pricing behavior is driven a lot by the mentality of you know people trying to buy in when the price is going up and then sell out when the price is going down. And you see a lot of momentum trading going right. on. And that actually isn't a great attribute for a currency to have, right. to have wild price swings. And so um, the extent to which I have even publicly spoken about pricing, it is to two effects. One is the higher the price of Dash goes, the larger our budget becomes because it's denominated in Dash. Mm -hmm. um, so it does affect our ability to grow. And the second thing is pricing behavior. Like we have a far more stable price, particularly during days when there's a, a massive sell-off than most cryptocurrencies do. Um, I attributed a lot to the attitude we have towards pricing and the way that we approach the marketplace, as well as our masternode model. And so uh, I do talk about those types of things, but I would say anytime you see a project that's focused on prices or discounts with a price countdown timer next to it, that's a big red flag to stay away. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Listener, Corey Fisher, he says, please, can you briefly comment on the Xcoin pre-mine? Okay, yeah. So this is back in 2014 when the coin first launched. The uh, emissions or the difficulty, it's called, of the mining algorithm, that formula had an error in it. And it allowed the difficulty to remain far lower than it should have for far longer. And the result of that is nearly a quarter of the existing coins were mined in the first 48 hours mm -hmm. of Dash's existence. Basically, it's not a pre-mine. It is a fast mine. Where, and is that, where is that? Are those coins right now? Are they in circulation or? They're in circulation, yeah. Oh, okay. So anyone was free to download the software and mine the currency those first 48 hours. And a lot of people did. A lot of those early coins were also sold on open marketplaces, redistributed elsewhere. The accusation that has gone around publicly is that the founder, Evan Duffield, uh, had those 2 million coins and therefore controlled the entire network work and you know is that true no it isn't um a few points of evidence one is that there were a lot of people active on the message boards those first 48 hours saying hey i'm mining i'm you know i'm doing all these things evan has also come out and publicly stated how many he had at a given point in time and uh it's simply not true it is true that evan holds or held as of beginning of last year uh, a roughly equal share as what Satoshi has of the Bitcoin um, oh, man. Uh, amount. So, you know, if, if Dash ever takes off uh, the way the Bitcoin has, uh, he would, in fact, be uh, quite wealthy. He already is. Uh, yeah. And so the, the acquisition is that, that he's running the majority of the masternodes, completely controls the network, etc. The truth is that uh, he doesn't run any masternodes with those coins and hasn't for over a year and a half and has in fact been spending that money on research. He runs a company called Dash Labs that he funds himself with that funding um, and has committed 80% of those assets to investing in the Dash network. 
The other aspect is that we have had a lot of, or the other evidence here is that we've had a lot of proposals that the Dash core team has put up, and it is sometimes difficult to get some of those to pass. We've had some that have failed. Anyone that held that number of coins would be able to easily force through anything, and that just doesn't happen. With about, if you had two million coins, you could you could basically force anything through. And so the evidence is over the last three years since the budget system has launched, there's no evidence that that is the case. So. I've also done some analyses and published them before I got involved in the team, you know, basically mathematically proving that it was impossible for him to do that in the first place. I estimated a number that was very close to the number it actually ended up being um, when he revealed it publicly. So uh, the facts just don't line up with it. But there have been active trolls for a number of years that have attempted to spread the narrative that uh, the network is centrally controlled and uh, operated, and it's simply not true. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I know Mr. Corey Fisher will be very appreciative of that answer. Mr. Ryan Taylor, CEO of <laughs> Dash Core Group, Inc., thank you very much for coming on Crypto 101, sir. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation, and hopefully uh, that gives you a good insight into what Dash is all about. It gives us great insight to you, Dash, the future, and I think it opened our eyes a lot on different ways to look at the payments ecosystem and, well, other currency coins out there. Before we go, I got a question for you. Just say, hypothetically, mm -hmm. if Crypto 101 had a Spotify playlist, what would you throw on there? Oh, God. A Spotify playlist for crypto? I've seen some great YouTube videos from some, like, DJ Bitcoin or something like that that is this Bitcoin? crazy old man. He's like this crazy old man that parodies rap videos with, like scantily clad women are all around them there and the, the lyrics are hilarious so maybe pull something from there all right brother hey man thank you very much for coming on crypto 101 man you have a good night all right you too thank you everyone for sticking with us through this long episode of crypto 101 I hope you found it worth it. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Ryan Taylor. Ryan, if you're listening, thank you very much for coming on the show. Next in the Crypto 101 feed, we have an ICO 101 podcast. Flu's Coin is coming on to talk to Aaron Paul. And after that in the feed, Crypto 101 podcast is back to talk to the CEO of Elastos, Rong Chen, about a very big and ambitious project. Before we go, ApogeeCrypto.com, A-P-O-G-E-E Crypto.com, the best place to check your real-time prices. CryptoNews.com for your news, and WP on the fly if you want a website. And after this, head over to YouTube. Check out the roundup of this episode on Crypto 101 Podcast with Matthew Aaron. We'll see you in the next episode. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries, and with that we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.